Blog Talk Radio. There was a time I was so afraid, so scared to do what I wanted. In looking back, I can see all the mistakes that I made, and I wish that I Talk to me and tell me I can change. Don't be afraid. Just walk with your head up high. Don't be afraid. Just take it one step at a time. Don't give up on your dreams, no matter how small. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio, Safe Recovery. This is Monica Richardson, and I am your host. Today is February 5th, 2013. I want to read a little bit of news. We have a big story here. This is uh, the uh, twist in the Sedgefield killing. This happened in Charlotte, North Carolina, reported by Cleve R. Wooston, Jr. out of the Charlotte Observer. Um, posted on Thursday, January 31st, 2013. Uh, victim was a Narcotics Anonymous sponsor. A man arrested in shooting had been sponsored by the victim's friend said. The man accused of killing Charles Middleton uh, at his South Charlotte home Saturday morning was a man he'd sponsor while involved in a Narcotics Anonymous program years ago, people close to the situation say. On Monday, Christopher Paul Huffman was taken into custody in Casa Grande, Arizona, more than 2,000 miles from the scene of the shooting on Elmhurst Road in Sedgefield's neighborhood adjacent to Dilworth, North Carolina. Charlotte Meckenberg homicide detectives traveled to Arizona on Monday to interview Huffman, who had no criminal record. Police have not divulged a possible motive in the killing or said whether Middleton's sponsorship work with Huffman made him a target. It's unclear how many people Middleton sponsored in his two decades with 12-step programs in Charlotte. He was one of the longest tenured members of his weekly meeting group, which was made up of a gay men's group who were also recovering addicts, friends said. Middleton took leadership roles and engaged other members, chatting over coffee before the meetings or at dinner afterward. He asked people to call him Mike, an abbreviation of his middle name. He freely gave out his cell phone number, friends said. He was semi-retired, and goes on and on, um, with a lot more here, but uh, we all know that um, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, a sponsor has absolutely no training whatsoever, and that, in fact, uh, we don't know in this case yet, although people are blogging on leaving AA, who did know the man who was the victim, uh, whether or not there was any sexual predation or sponsor power tripping, you know, the stuff that goes on. But I'm sure we'll find out as things go on here. 
and I am going to bring on my guest. So today, we have a very, very special guest. Um, we've had her on before. It's Michelle Dunbar. She is from the uh, St. Jude's Retreats that are uh, in upstate New York. They have an office in uh, lower Manhattan. I think uh, Stephen Slate runs that office, and we're going to bring her right on. Let's see. Here we go. Hi, Michelle. Is this you? Uh, this is me. Hi. Hi. How are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you, Monica. It's good to have you. It's good to be here. Mm-hmm. So, did you know anything about this story that I just read before bringing you on? I did not. I had not heard about that. Mm. Well, I, I'm not shocked. I mean, I can't say that I'm shocked, but, I, you know, it's, it's always troubling to hear those kinds of things. Mhm, mhm. Yeah, uh, we'll see what happens with it. But um, so, you know, I we've had John before, and people are always talking about that. Is always you know, there's only twelve step rehabs and treatment centers. Now you don't call yourself that. Can you tell us why you don't call yourself a rehab or a treatment center? Basically, because we don't provide any kind of treatment. Um, we are completely behaviorally based. Um, what we have, what we call a social educational program, um, where we don't tell people how to live. Um, we don't presume to know what's best for them in their lives. We don't judge the behaviors of drinking and drug using. Um, we just provide options for people, different options and different lifestyle choices, mm-hmm. and we teach them exactly what the problem is and is not. Wow. Um, so, how many? Houses or places do you have? We have three retreats in upstate New York. Uh-huh. And uh, so how long does somebody, if somebody's having a problem, if you could give us the process of how somebody would, you know, find out about it. Well, first let me just say this, soberforever.net, right? Is that That's your web page? That's our primary website, yes. Right. So if you're listening, it's soberforever.net, or if you also Google in, St. Jude Retreats, um, it brings you to this. So uh, the number is 1-888-424-2626 to contact them. Again, that's 1-888-424-2626. Okay, Michelle, so tell us about, I love what you just said. That's such a refreshing answer. I don't think that would happen at Betty Ford. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. I'm telling you, you know what, I have a really good friend who's a musician, and he know somebody who knows somebody, you know, and he, I guess he went with that person, and he said the looks up and down, like judging him, and like like they were the CIA or something, and he was like carrying what? I don't know, bananas into, you know, Betty Ford. But the whole like, you know, well, you know, we know everything. and So I'm glad you're not on that page. So it's uh, somebody wants to come there, what do they do and what happens? Basically, most people find us on the Internet and they give us a call. Um, We've had people come through, you know, straight from detox. We've had people come through, uh, you know, call us on a, you know, right right off of a meth run. Um, And or we've had people call us who have been sober, drug-free for many years and really just want to improve the quality of their life. They Mm want to maybe recover from the the AA problems that they've had. Wow. Um, So, so. Everyone's welcome. 
Um, and like I said, it, it, it's an absolutely non-judgmental process even from the beginning. So when you call in, if you're looking for help, um, basically, you know, you, you you have your options. You have an option of coming to our, our, our residential program for six to ten weeks. You have an option of starting with detox. We've now partnered with a great detox in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the option of going to, you know, if you if you live in, in Manhattan or in the greater New York area, you can just take gay classes with Stephen Slate. He's our instructor in New York. Mm-hmm. And he also offers classes uh, online via Skype. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, will take, yeah. yeah he's great. He's going to be on next week. So if you're listening now, we're going to have Stephen Slate from the Clean Slate and also working with St. Jude Retreats. I love this. So I, I, I love the fact that, you're having people come who are in AA a long time who need, is it deprogramming or are they re-traumatized by leaving? <laughs> it's, well, it's kind of a, a lot. Of, most of the people we come that have been in an, in an a, in AA a long time, Some we had somebody come through that had uh, put together about, you know, 20 years of sobriety and then relapsed mm-hmm. and, you know, didn't really pick up right where they left off. But everybody around them was so freaked out by the fact that they were drinking at all um, that they forced them to go to a treatment program. And they said, I'm not going to a treatment program. I'll try. They found us because of looking for something that was Mm -hmm. non-AA and and really was looking for somebody to validate that, you know, I'm okay. I'm really going to be okay. (laughs) Wow. Boy, what a brainwashing the whole family had, huh? Exactly. Exactly. There's a lot of lot of fear and misinformation out there. Right. Right. Very interesting. Um, I considered when I was when I left AA and I was deprogramming, and then I was making the beginning of my film. When I started, I went down to San Diego to interview Tom Horvath at Smart, and went to his, you know, it's re- practical recovery, which it really is in a home. It's a beautiful normal-looking house, and you walk inside, but there was so much offered there, and I was like, holy shit, you know, I missed out on so much. Like, I could have learned so many skills, like cognitive skills and, and other skills. And, you know, me and Hank Hayes, who wrote You've Been Lied To, were joking, and he said to me when I, we first were talking, he goes, man, those smart people, you know, two years in smart recovery meetings, he goes, they've passed us, you know, we've been around for 10 years. <laughs> they learned so much. Right. You know, of really valid uh, life skills that, uh, and I kind of looked at him and thought, wow. And, you know, and then I joked with my husband. I was like, let's go down there for a couple of days and, and learn some new things because you don't learn anything in <laughs> NAA after nine months or something. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I like this. So do you take insurance or you don't because you're not considered a... Because we're not considered treatment. And and there's, there's an upside to not taking insurance in a lot of ways. Number one, a lot of people get to treat regular treatment programs. Their insurance pays for, you know, half for two weeks, and then you've got all these out-of-pocket expenses. Or all of a sudden, you know, treatment says, well, your insurance stopped paying, so you got to go home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when the insurance is in charge of what treatment you receive or or how long you can stay somewhere um they're going to they're going to definitely err on the side of uh, too little rather than too much mm-hmm. um and this way it takes that out of the equation but we do offer financing for that most people can afford right right well that's good 
Um, so how far away are you from the city or from the main city? Um, we're about two, a two-and-a-half-hour drive north of New York. Oh, okay. I don't know why you thought you were five hours away or somewhere really north. So that's not too bad, two-and-a-half hours. You can fly into Manhattan or New Jersey. Yep, people can fly into New... Well, actually, people can fly right into Albany. Believe it or not, it is an international airport. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think they fly to, like, Canada or something. Right, right. But, uh, <laughs> but we, we do provide transportation from the airport in Albany, and it really is... I've taken the train many times back and forth to New York, and it really is a nice short train ride from Albany to New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I took the train from Boston down, and I had never done that when I lived there, uh, when I was shooting some interviews from my film last summer, and it was really relaxing. I really enjoyed it. It was mm-hmm. really... It, it, it's, it's my favorite way to, to travel to New York, mm-hmm. definitely. It's really nice. So, uh, now... Do you want to talk a little bit about yourself, or would you like to just talk about the um, St. Jude's and your background? It really doesn't matter to me. <laughs> I'm oh. open to whatever you want to know. So, I, I mean, you were somebody who, there were many people that helped me a lot. Uh, there were people that helped me before I knew I was going to leave, you know, and then people that and once I knew I was going to leave uh, started to tell me more and more about, the truth of, you know, things, uh, how they left. And you were somebody who really uh, helped me by just someone who said that they were in the program for a very long time. Your father was in AA. And I know you a lot better than, you know, maybe the first time I had you on, which seems to happen here, but that you were very, very helpful to me uh, with, you know, what your beliefs were and how they changed. And could you just talk a little bit about that? I would, I would. Um, yeah, I was uh, first exposed to AA as a 9 or 10-year-old when my dad was mandated to meetings after he had gotten arrested for DWI. Mm-hmm. That was somewhere in the mid-1970s, so everybody can date me now. Right. Uh, I know how old I am. <laughs> um, and, uh, and he, you know, he got involved only because he had to. He didn't really ever buy the idea that he was an alcoholic. My grandfather also had drinking problems. He was a World War II vet and had drinking problems and mm-hmm. was in and out of VA hospitals for 40 years. Oh. Um, and so so I was around it forever. Um, and my dad, you know, did tell me at one point, geez, you know, if you ever drink, you're going to have a drinking problem because that was the prevailing school of thought. So mm-hmm. right from a young age, right from 12 years old, I was told I was going to have a drinking problem. Well, wow. if you want to set your child up to have a drinking problem, that's the pro- that's the best way to do it. Right. Um, you know, and so the, the self-fulfilling prophecy being what it was, mm-hmm. um, you know, at 16, 17, 18 years old when I started drinking, partying, um, I used to, like, toast my dad because he couldn't drink. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, hey, you know, here's all the outies. And, you know, I know I'm going to be with them someday. I mean, I would say things like that. Wow. And um, and then, you know, by, you know, 19, 20 years old, I was well immersed in the party culture. And just like so many 19, 20-year-olds, I mean, that was my primary purpose in life was to go get wasted. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so you know, when I was when it was time for me to take my rightful place at an AA, at an AA meeting, I did it. Um, I was 22 and went to my first AA meeting and said all the things I was supposed to say. By then, my dad was saying, oh, you know, this might not be a good idea. Uh-huh. But, you know, 
at that point I wasn't I wasn't listening. I was like, yep, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. Um, and so I was a mercenary for a long time, and I, I never really felt like I fit in um, in certain ways because I didn't really feel like, well, I never really felt like I was powerless, mm-hmm. you know, because there right. were times when I knew intellectually that I hadn't drank when I really couldn't, right. and, you know, and there were times when I when I would use, I would go on drug binges, and then I would stop, mm-hmm. um, so I... So I, I didn't fit all the criteria, and I thought, well, I'm just not as bad as some people. Right. Um, and then, then I saw people, and I was lots worse than others. So, you know, but I got immersed in the culture, and, you know, while I didn't buy it 100%, there was enough of it there to when, um, when you know, my dad and St. Jude's were kind of pulling away, um, I was fearful for them, and I was fearful for me um, because I felt like, you know, I knew that I wasn't powerless, but at the same time, I was fearful that what's going to happen. You know, what's going to happen if I start going to meetings? You wow. know, I'm, I've been to, told for so long that well, you'll be off to the races. You know, you're just you're you're in trouble. And wow. um, and I sponsored so many people, and I felt guilty for leave when I stopped going to meetings. And I just, but I was, you know, I was moving on with my life. I was, I didn't, I was having children. I didn't get sober so that I could not not have the things that people have that are successful. Right. You know, I didn't ch- change my life, so I had to go to meetings every night instead of being a mother or right. instead of having a career. Um, and there were times when people would call me, when you were talking about that story, um, I sponsored, you know, hundreds of women over an eight- to ten-year period. And, you know, there were people that threatened my life, there were people that wow. stole from me and broke. There was some one of my husband's sponsees broke into our car and stole our car stereo. Oh I my mean, god! It, we had some. Cra- I was stalked by an A member. We lived actually one block from a clubhouse, and I was stalked for about three months from an A member. Why? Um, I mean, Why? Yeah, it's just it was crazy stuff going on. And I once I started having, you know, family and having children, I thought I can't. My children can't be around this. I can't be. This can't be a part of my life. And for me, it was like normal at that point. Wow. You know that we were just immersed. It was. It was a craziness. It was the same craziness that I'd had drinking, but I was doing it sober. And I thought, that's not. That's not why I got sober. Oh my God! Um, yeah, yeah. Yes. Now, so, how long ago? So how long ago was that, Michelle? When did that happen? That kind of stuff. That was in the nineties. That was during the nineties. I went to AA pretty much daily throughout the nineteen nineties. Oh my God, you poor thing! <laughs> yeah, it, it was. I'm, I gotta tell you, it was when when you and I first talked, and we talked about the, um, you know, the the problems with young women in the meetings. Yeah. Um, I it's 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 everywhere. I mean, it was, mm. you know, to have when I would have young girls that I was sponsoring, I would quite frankly, I'd tell their parents, I'm like, they they can't, they shouldn't go to this meeting. I would handpick meetings for them to go to. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, because I knew that there were meetings that were where predators were. Wow, and, even um, back then. So interesting. Even back then. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now, were these the kind of predators that were old timers, or were these already guys who knew that were sexual predators that were targeting AA meetings? They weren't even guys with problems. Um, you know, I don't know. I just knew who they were. I just knew they had reputations that preceded them. Okay. And because my dad had been around for so long, he said, you know, that guy, there were people that were legitimately uh, 
sexual predators that were on the that were sex offenders yeah. um, that he knew about, and then there yeah. were just people that he knew preyed on young women, and um, mm. and he was very protective, of course, of me. So it, I in turn knew about where I should go and shouldn't go, and where these young women should go and shouldn't go. Wow, you know, oh my God! And how old are your kids now? I have nineteen, seventeen, and fourteen-year-old boys. So how many years did you stop going? How long ago was it? Um, I really stopped completely by 2000. Oh, wow, so it's been like 12 years. And what mm-hmm. would you say the biggest difference uh, from when you went and were immersed and that, and completely deprogrammed and out with your children and how you acted around, your, you know, with your kids and around alcohol and stuff? Were you saner? <laughs> I, I, I was, but, you know, I went through, I say 2000, I went through a couple years where I was not, connected in any way. I wasn't connected to A. I wasn't connected to St. Jude's because I had, I wasn't volunteering. My sons were very, were young. Um, you know, they were, my youngest was still a toddler. Um, so it was, at first I was kind of lonely, mm-hmm. but I felt so free. Like, like I, I felt like nobody was, finally nobody was watching me. I always felt like I lived in a fishbowl. Mm-hmm. You know that that I I wasn't allowed because I was sponsoring all these people and I was never allowed to be to do bad things and I you know I I, I wow. felt like I was judged continuously wow. and um, so it, I, for the first time in a long time I felt like I was free to do what I wanted to do and to mm-hmm. be who I wanted to be you know and yeah. uh, but I was fearful too I mean I was I was you know I was always kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop I was always you know, when's it going to happen? When is that moment going to come when, when I'm just going to go off the rails? And, <laughs> you know, all that stuff that's talked about. And, right. And, you know, it didn't happen. I didn't go crazy. I didn't, you know, I wasn't craving alcohol. You know, I wasn't, it, I just, it was just really, really freeing, if anything. Well, you know, I have a blogger that has been on my uh leaving AA site. We're talking to Michelle Dunbar from St. Jude's Retreats, if uh, you just tuned in. And one of the uh, things that happened, started happening, was he started to blog about moderation versus abstinence, leaving uh, AA after 17 years. And it, I guess it was um, maybe in September when he arrived on my blog, I think. Maybe he arrived there before. So today, I woke up this morning, and there was this post. And so I took it from the thread, which we I created a thread because of him called, you know, at the top, we have links, and one of them is absence versus moderation I created just for him because the story really took off and people wanted to talk about it. So I made a link, but this is what he wrote. You're going to love this. I thought it was so interesting. So he first, what he did, though, is he went to moderation website, moderation management, and Ham's Harm Reduction, and he, like, read everything, and, you know, he started to tell us on a daily basis or, like, you know, a couple times a week what was going on. And this is what he wrote today. I went out to eat the other day with an old-timer friend with deep roots in AA. Three of the five members at the table admitted to using either weed, hallucinogens, or prescription drugs to ease anger. All take cakes in AA. All are well-adjusted, successful, and wealthy. So this is what I wrote. I said, 
you know, I, I talked about him there, you know, and I said, what would a meeting look like and sound like if perhaps 25% of the room came out and told such stories, <laughs> stating that they could take it or leave it, that AA and its 12 steps didn't really help with life issues anymore after years of not drinking. And in fact, staying in AA a long time made them feel so uptight and angry, it was unbearable. So they drink moderately, they smoke pot moderately, they take pills here and there and do whatever moderately and not. And you got me thinking, and it would be a very funny scene for sure when they start to cross-talk and yell at each other. Would there be a brawl like in an old Western movie with chairs flying and women yelling and cowboy hats flying? <laughs> but can you imagine? I started to think, wow, well, if, you know, he's experiencing that and he's, you know, he's posting anonymously and he still goes to meetings just to see some guys and he doesn't, you know, go often. But right. I I thought about what you're saying and the thing with me is when I left, I really took a lot of time in deprogramming and didn't think that anything bad. I, in fact, I knew nothing. I thought it, I knew it was all bullshit. Uh, even right. though, you know, I didn't drink when I left. Um, I left and be- really thought, I think I stayed too long because the last four months I could barely, I couldn't listen to the readings. It was horrible. You know, I just was like, oh, my God, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And then I was like, how did you ever, I felt like I was on drugs rather than like the opposite. I felt like someone had put like acid in my water. That's how, I mean, I'm sure anyone who leaves a real cult goes through what I, what we went through. Absolutely. Did you ever feel like at times that you go, wow, I was in a cult? Did you go through that? Oh, yes, especially when I started working at St. Jude's. It was 2000, we had a, like a, we created, because we had left AA, but St. Jude's created this fellowship, which was similar, but without the steps, it was kind of this, this group, but it, it really was our, it, we got rid of it entirely in 2002, and because it felt cultish still even. I mean, yeah. we went through this process as a group of deprogramming, you know, where, you know, we just wanted people to get the answer that they were okay and and, and learn how to change their own lives and then move on. Like we didn't we didn't want them chained to us or chained to their past. Right. And, and that's what it felt like. And I can remember thinking the things that I said to people, I mean, I was a big book thumper. I really was. I, I was one of those people. And I actually handed this poor girl, this poor girl who came to me for help, and we took her out to coffee, me and a couple other women, the self-righteous women. Oh, so awful. Took yeah. her out to coffee, and she was lamenting about the fact that she had, now I at the time didn't have kids. Yeah. And I was like 23, 24 years old. She was lamenting about how she had her children, and she couldn't get meetings every single night, and she didn't understand how this was supposed to work. And I literally handed her a $20 bill and said, why don't you just go get drunk then? I mean, I did stuff like that, oh and I God. thought, wow. I mean, I'm horrified to think about right. it now. Right. I mean, it's, right. it's absolutely outrageous. But it's what people did with me. Yeah. You know? Wow. And that's what I learned. So when you said at the beginning, you know, these people aren't trained, and here they are giving, you know, handing out advice like some guru Mm-hmm. And you know, I was at the time I was a couple years sober, so I was considered a guru, 
You know, people yeah. looked up to me. I never saw that woman again, and I hope she's okay. Right. You know, um, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I'm remorseful, and um, but it took me ten years to deprogram myself, almost ten years, out of it wow. before I took my first drink, before I said, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to see what happens. Right. And so, what happened? You know, it was weird. It was it was at a wedding. It was it was a toast, and I said, I'm gonna have I'm gonna drink the champagne. And I had already discussed it with my husband, who had been sober even longer than me. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, okay. And we both had the champagne, and nothing happened. Right. <laughs> it was great right. champagne. It was it was wonderful. Right. And then maybe a month or two later, I had a glass of wine with dinner, mm-hmm. and um, and that was it. And it that's that. It's been a couple years. I. I drink moderately. I feel like a grown-up. For the first, I mean, I'm 45 years old, and I finally feel like a grown-up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's a really important uh, story that you have to tell. I mean, I know that your dad was so involved. I think that's interesting that he, when he, when you were getting so involved, like he was seeing that it wasn't such a great idea, huh? He was. He 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 didn't he didn't want me to be so he wanted to be me to be immersed enough to become an expert because I had gone to school for psychology and yeah. he and I had had long debates about the disease of addiction yeah. um and you know cuz he never he said it's not a disease it's not and I said mm. well you know all the research says that it is and the truth was the research doesn't say that at all um you know once I really immersed myself in it and started understanding where he was coming from yeah um and then doing the research on my own real independent research I thought my gosh this whole time he he knew what he was talking about um my father to this day is still has not drank i mean he he you know he used to tell people I drank enough in my first four years of life never to drink again and um and I, he's okay with that um but he has always said that he could He's always said, "Oh yeah, I absolutely could if I wanted to. I would. It would not be a problem for me." Well, he's it, it, so he's still alive. Yes, my dad is still alive. He is. He's seventy. Yeah. And um, yep. And he is. Yep. He's never. He he's never drank again. But you know, he he really didn't want to. Right. Well, he got to drink a lot longer than you and I. I mean, I only drank. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? So it, I think it's very different stories, which is. Why I related to you, or somebody who, even were, were in and out of the program for years, someone you know like myself who drank, you know, it, I would say now looking back from 13 to 18, but you know it was still moderate. It was moderate, you know. I mean, the when I was 13, 14, yeah. 15, I was not a daily drinker, you know. Um, I was a binge weekend drinker, and yeah. but um, <clears throat> so we were children. We we were children. I was a teenager, and I remember when I first was interviewing Stanton Peel in person, and, you know, he had flown out here, and Amy Lee Coy introduced me, and I went down there and, you know, just got the camera, and he said to me, you know, Monica, you're not not an alcoholic, and we we started to talk, and, I mean, I certainly would never call myself that now uh, at all, and, you know, I, I think to myself, why did you, even my sons were like, why are you calling yourself that, Mom? You, you know, you haven't had a drink in 30-something years when this was like years ago. But, but thinking about what you just said, though, this is really important. <clears throat> the research, the, I would really like to see in our media real discussion of research. And we have people like Dr. Drew 
And this crazy-ass woman that's on Fox News who has her own show, who is a member of probably the Pacific Group, I don't know whether, but she's a total stepper, you know, and has a she's a reporter. Where can I, because I'm making this film, and, you know, where's the real research? It says, it's, I mean, I hear some people say it, but how can these people get up there and say, talk about it's a disease when it's not, it's a behavior. So where did you find what you found? Actually, um, we found it. We, I researched what um, Yelnick had done at Yale, uh-huh. um, and or was it at Harvard? I get confused now. But <laughs> and I said Yelnick's research, Yelnick absolutely retracted his proof that alcoholism is a disease um, ten years after he submitted it. I mean, it found to be a complete fraud, and that really, that was the only thing I could find that was the basis for alcoholism as a disease. Mm. Addiction itself, you know, has never been proven. And and when you talk about behavioral sciences anyways, that's the one thing we learn, you know, in, in Psych 101, is that behavioral sciences, there's no proof or no, there's, there's not a proof that something is or isn't. There's correlations, there's hypotheses, hypotheses. There's the theories, but in behavioral science, it's not exact. Mm. Um, so, so you posit these hypotheses, and they sound good or they don't sound good, and there's evidence to support them, but there's always evidence to detract, you know, to say they're not true as well. And, you know, when I really started looking at, um, you know, we actually have on our Baldwin Research website, we had a, a doctoral, doctoral candidate do research on Yelnick's um, study. And and she wrote a piece called, you know, Alcoholism, a Disease and Speculation. Mm-hmm. And really, she picks apart the study for what it was, which was an opportunistic, it was funded by um, Marty Mann and Brinkley Smithers, mm-hmm. um, you know, AA people, yeah. um, so, that, so that they could listen to the disease and they could get funding for treatment centers. I mean, mm-hmm. that really, this is one of those situations where people saw money to be made. Right. Um, and they did the research, just like the pharmaceutical companies, they did the research to show what they needed it to show. Mm. You know, you know and even, even when you look at these, like there's, um, pharmaceutical companies have funded a lot of research more recently mm-hmm. about a, a, gen, a gene, a genetic link. Mm-hmm. Um not, almost none of them use control groups. Yeah, we. I was watching the beginning of Zeitgeist uh, on Netflix. We, Kevin and I were looking. We couldn't find which one. Someone said, you know, you should watch this great documentary. And so I put on one, which I was, thought was interesting because they're interviewing three doctors. Uh, you know, two of them were definitely research uh, scientists, neuro, neuroscientists, and one was Gabor Mate, who... Anyway, uh, one of the things they were saying was that there was no, there was not a gene, you know, that there was not a proven gene, and that even if there was one, it would mean that would have an effect of only 20%. Like, you still had to have all the other stress components, and that's all Gabor Mate's. I'm still learning where, you know, he says it's the environment that, you know, if people have been, you know, he sees a pattern where a lot of people have there have been abused and all this. But then there's a whole group of people where that's not the case either. There's a whole group that that is the case, that their childhood environment involved sexual or physical, you know, abuse. But 
you know, they were basically saying, and I thought, oh, my God, i got to interview one of these guys because this is a big part of the brainwashing that goes on in Alcoholics Anonymous. But what's sadder, you know, Michelle, is that is much bigger than AA is television and film and our media. And there's this constant influx in Los Angeles of these steppers that get these shows and do these shows. I mean, I heard the creators of Nurse Jackie. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Yes. Like you actually convinced a network, you know, and this this actress who has won awards is never acting like an addict ever. She like right. takes pills, but all she does is act bad. But she doesn't really act like an addict. Or like, what about the shows where they're going to do an intervention, and she's going to go to you know, and she's going to get sober, and they're going to drop all the AA lingo, and we've never even seen the character drunk. Right. I mean, this is on Criminal Minds. It's like a big show, successful show. I sometimes I once loved the show, but once I did that, I said, "Are you kidding me?" Click. Exactly. Exactly. It, it, it's you know the, the new show that's out, Elementary, um, where the, she's she's his babysitter. I mean, you know, which the one? Character well, which that, show? It's called Elementary. It's a new show. Sherlock <laughs> Holmes is the primary character, and yeah. his babysitter, his life coach, or whatever you want to call her, her name is Watson, and the storyline is that this this crime fighter Sherlock Holmes is, a, is I, I believe, an, a heroin addict, and but you've never, you know, he's he's clean now, but she, every once in a while she'll force him to go to a meeting, but he mocks it, which is the only redeeming thing about the show, mm. and he basically says, look at I... I, I, you know, I stopped, I, that was a phase I went through. I used drugs for a while. I got high for a while, and now I don't do it anymore. And, and I'm not going to do it anymore, and I don't need to go to the stupid meetings. But he's got this babysitter. And, you know, and I, I caught my, my kids were watching it one day, and they're like, you have to see this, you know, because they've grown up. They know about what I do. Right. And they're just like, can you, they know that those kinds of shows just so irritate me. When, when they went through that on House, Every show that I've watched, it I know. seems like yeah. it's got that storyline in it. And I'm like, come on, for real? Aren't people sick of this storyline? Right. I mean, that's what I feel. I mean, I think that even girls that I was watching that I liked and, you know, it was a co-write with somebody else where they have her trying coke. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is not even like her. You know, why does somebody, there's another stepper that got hired on the show who's now pushing his, well, you know, like there's a lot of, there's millions of steppers out there. Let's like get a through line going, man. With And I'm like, no. Like, you know, and some, somebody said to me uh, the other day that maybe there's millions of ex and unhappy people because if we did statistics, that you would definitely know that there are more who've left and are not happy because AA is declining in growth. I mean, this is, I guess this is you know, when I heard Tom Horvath on Huffington Live. Have you ever been on Huffington Live? I have not. You guys ought to contact them and maybe get you and I Amy Lee Coy and Hank Hayes on, all three of you at the same time. Maybe I'll send them a letter. But it's called Huffington Live, and, and Stanton Peel was on, so they have this, you know, they do interviews and live stuff, and why not have the, you know, let, let's hear from the other side. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, absolutely. Uh, I'm like tired of it, you know, really tired of this story, this stupid, wow, wow. So 
What sh- what channel is this show on that you're talking about? Um, I think it's on CBS. Mm-hmm. I think it's a CBS show. Like Nashville, have you seen that one? Boy, one of my, the writer, Gabrielle Glaser, called me and she said, oh, you haven't seen that show? And I'm like, no. And I no, sort of watched it. No, I haven't seen that one. <laughs> oh, my God. I put it up on my website. I got so mad. And I, you know, the actors, and I'm like, can you give me a break? Like, why can't somebody, you know, just stop on their own or, you know, so I guess it's, you know, going to take me or someone else or a group of us to write, to write a piece that's really different, you know. Um, so let's talk more about, I, I, I think, uh, what are some of the, the, when somebody comes there, I see that Amy came into the uh, chat room. Hey there, Amy. Uh, we're talking to Michelle Dunbar here from St. Jude's Retreats. It's not a rehab. It's not a treatment center. Uh, what are some of the things that you do, their groups, or what kind of skills you teach people? help them so when they leave they can decide right if they want to be abstinent or not is that right <laughs> pretty much um the, the primary difference and and this is this is so incredible is we actually have a program curriculum you know when you go into a treatment program um you know and I've done different counseling and stuff like that when I was younger um you pretty much sit and you talk about your problems um, you, you sit in therapy sessions, you go to su- support group meetings and group therapy meetings, and that is the, that's what comprises your treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, every day is pretty much like the day before. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just sit and you talk about different things and you know, anger management and this and that. What we do is a comprehensive curriculum that has three basic components. And the first one is, what is addiction? Okay, I feel powerless. Why Why do I feel powerless if I'm really not? If it's not a disease, what is it? Mm-hmm. We use science to explain exactly what happens, exactly how people form their habits. You know, some people are naturally upbeat, happy people, and they things come easy to them. And then some people are more depressive, and they look at things. You know, it's just the way their, their personality is and their makeup is. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you can't be an upbeat person if you're a negative person by nature. It just right. means you got to work a little harder than everybody else. Mm-hmm. So so we, we talk about those kinds of things that, you know, there isn't a disease, there isn't a point in time where you cross a line and you're powerless, um, but you do develop habits and habitual ways of thinking um, mm-hmm. and behaving. So that's the first phase, which can be very empowering because people really begin to think, maybe I do have control, maybe I ha- maybe where I am at this point in my life is up to me, it's because of things I've done. And so the second phase is an intensive self-analysis. We really do look at, um, you really do write down all of your patterns, all of them from as early as you can remember, you know, things that, you know, in, in A, you write a life story to basically write your sins down. Um, right. But here what you're really looking to, to find out is, you know, why did I why did I make this choice? Why did I make this choice? Why do I hate this person? Why do I hate that person? You know, what was in every situation what was my role, and and you really start to see a pattern of who you are mm-hmm. and how you got to where you are in your life. And it's very, very illuminating. There's different exercises that you go through. We just have, you know, our, our instructors, are, we train them because they're extensive training, and they just guide you through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're in class, you're in classes with very, like maybe one or two other people. Yeah. You go to our, exec, our executive retreat is all private. Yeah. Um, so that you're you're free to have a free exchange with the instructor. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third phase of the program is just building the life that you want. Okay, now you know who you are. Who would you like to be? Mm-hmm. And make a plan to become that person. And so mm-hmm. by the time you leave after six to ten weeks, you really have revamped your life the way you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Wow. And the cost? Um, the cost ranges from um twenty three seventy five per week all the way at our up at our executive retreat if you want the the whole shebang the private and the you know the um uh private bedroom and that sort of thing um that usually i think that's see i should know this that's around five to six thousand per week it's all inclusive um and we do offer financing and in some cases we offer financial aid for people who who um, qualify. Right. You know, I um, the place that Carla Brada was sent, she was a woman who was murdered. Uh, I've gotten to know the parents and have gone to court a couple of times around this case because she went to somebody and then they sent her to this rehab, which she didn't really get much there, and it was like $1,000 a day. Oh, and I was like, gosh. for $1,000 a day? day she could have gone to practical recovery and like that's expensive a thousand a day but you get get all the bells and whistles all the yoga the massage i mean all the great you know gourmet food that he has down there and you know yours yours is 23.75 per week the lower end right yes so what you just said so seven divided into that is three three something a day like right three hundred yep Yep, it's like three. Let's just say three, right. And so, you know, already, you know, you're going to learn some other stuff. But, I mean, there's a lot of the other programs that are charging the insurance companies this kind of money, and they get a big book. Like somebody was really mad, and she was, like, uh, talking about spending forty grand. I think she started her own blog. Um, Oh, I I think it was called Common Sense 1111 on YouTube. I was watching some deprogramming videos. That's right, Common Sense 1111. And it was 40 grand, and you get a big book, and you're sitting in these stupid meetings. They're making fun of it on Californication, except that he's in a high-end rehab. He's probably like in Passages or somewhere. I don't promise. What's what's the name, Amy? Which one is it? She knows the name of all of them. I don't remember the names, but wow. So I, I love what you're talking about the three different aspects so at first you're you're saying you know why am i this way right yeah and yeah. People are what, fi- what is really going on what's mm-hmm. really going on you find people are finding out that they're not powerless that they don't have a disease uh you probably have to there's some deprogramming because it's so much in our culture now where people make this assumption right the second part is then you look at all your patterns is that what you said Yes, you look at all your patterns of thought and behavior and emotions. Um, unfortunately, now we have this, you know, when, in 2002 when I really started really working uh, for St. Jude's and, and you know, was working in the, in the reservations office where people were calling in, yeah. you know, only about 20 to 30% of the people were dual diagnosed. And mm-hmm. now that's flip-flopped, and it's like 80% are dual diagnosed. So now we have to not only overcome this, this you know, treatment mentality, but we also have to overcome these, you know, these emotional diagnoses of depression and anxiety and bipolar, mm-hmm. which, 
you know, it's, there's no way that 20% of the population is bipolar. I'm sorry. It just no. doesn't work that way. No, they're not. You know, but they have to, but I was told that to get, uh, for treatment to pay for some of them. That's right. That I was told that's that right. now they won't accept alcoholism because it isn't, that you have to then, you know, make somebody have a mental illness so that then that's they can, right. can be given a drug by the pharmaceutical company and then they're going to pay for them. That's what I was told by some... That's exactly uh, what happens. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's exactly what happens. And so now we're getting people that are on uh, multiple, uh, you know, medications. They have multiple diagnoses. Um, they've been in and out of you know, treatment programs for a very long time. They're, they've been in therapy. And all of this reinforces this idea that they don't have control. And then when you add to that, like some of the young people that we're getting, they were diagnosed with mental health issues as young as four, five, and six years old. Really you know, so you get all these kids that have ADD and ADHD who are no, at very young ages. Right. They you don't know, have I, ADHD. I mean, yeah. I mean, I got to tell you, Michelle, so somebody just said one out of six, and I said, you're out of your mind, and you're making like half a million dollars from either Roche or Pfizer or one of them, Lily, who's ever making that ADHD medicine. It makes me so mad. Like, I mean, I saw Generation RX, and I was like, I mean, I don't have any of that in my life or my family, like, you know, my immediate family, but I have, uh, I mean, I I just think it's, are you nuts? Like, I've interviewed Robert Whitaker on my show who wrote, what is it called, the, the, I forget the name of it, but, you know, he wrote the book all about an epidemic, right? It's, uh... It's really, it's wrong. Not everybody, one out of 20, 20% of Americans are mentally ill. What the fuck? It's, it's insane. And you know what these kids happen to these kids? They learn, I can't control myself unless I'm on drugs. So what happens is when they're 16, wow. 17, 18 years old, you wow. know, those drugs aren't good enough anymore. Um, and and that, that's what we're finding is we, we're getting so many young people, that's 18, really 19, sad. 20 years old, who legitimately believe that they don't have control over anything, nothing in their lives. Um, wow, and that's it's, fucked it's, up. That is it fucked really, up. It really, really is. It really is. Oh, my God. Um, and so we have an added, that's that. So that first portion of the program is deprogramming on so many levels. Mm. Well, if you're just mm-hmm. tuning in, we're, we're talking to Michelle Dunbar, who is, are you the president? What is your position? I am the executive director. You are the, she's the executive director for St. Jude's Retreats, and they are in upstate New York, uh, two and a half hours north of Manhattan, but there is an office in Manhattan. I met Stephen Slate this summer. He's fantastic. So if you're in Manhattan and you need to talk to somebody in person, does he run any kind of group there, or is it one-on-one with Stephen there? It's all one-on-one with Stephen, and he does free consultations with people over the phone or via Skype or even one-on-one in his office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's pretty awesome. Uh, we're going to have Stephen on next week. Wow. I mean, I just uh, that's pretty intense what you just said about all the young people, and, and, and you've seen this. What would you say the escalation of this ADT thing and all the people coming in with on the medication, when do you, I mean, how long, how many years has it kind of spiked? It's been, it's over the last five years. It really Mm -hmm. has, um, I mean, it literally just, it seemed like overnight it flip-flopped, where where there was, you know, there was very few, relatively few people coming in dual diagnosed, and now it's nearly everyone 
Um, and, and unfortunately, it, it it makes it so we have to not only deprogram them, but their families as well. Um, mm. We actually, I just completed our family program and, and I'm going to be, you know, getting that book published within the next couple of weeks. Oh, good. Um, where, a book? Yeah, <laughs> where... It deprograms the families. That's specifically what the book is for: is to is to really enter common sense back into the equation. Wow! What's the name of the book? It's the Saint Jude Family Program. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I didn't think about it till just now because I've been doing nothing but working on it for the last several months. Yeah. And um, I actually spent about eighteen months in the making, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just finished it. And I really, I'm really excited. Well, we have about seven minutes left of the show. I'm going to give the number, 818-475-9211, if anyone wants to call in. Uh, There's a few minutes here. 818-475-9211. If you want to call St. Jude's uh, Retreats, uh, the website is SoberForever.net, or you can Google St. Jude Retreats, and it will come up. Uh, That's the website is SoberForever.net. Phone number for them is one eight 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 four two four twenty six twenty six. Again, that's eight 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 four two four twenty six twenty six. And they have a you know private for executives who uh, want to go one on one, and then you have um, a, a regular program for the lay person like uh, somebody like myself. Um, wow. It is really great to have you on again. I really, every time I speak to you, <clears throat> I just feel saner and saner. I mean, that's the thing that speaking to other women who went into AA Young, who were abstinent, who left after many years, and are free from the cult. Yeah. It, it, it was a long time coming, but it's definitely... Um, and I had a similar experience. You know, I married somebody from the cult, too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think had we not gotten away from the cult, we wouldn't still be together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've, we've been married 20 years this year. And, um, and you know, he was he left before I did. Um, but, wow. but I, uh, you know, we both, we both got free. Thank God. <laughs> wow. So when he left before you, uh, what was that like for you then? Well, you know, it was... I don't think I was nervous for him as much as I was nervous the fact that we wouldn't that we wouldn't be able to be together um, because we were already married at the time and uh, and he just basically said he goes I, I I'm done with this and he had experience with another cult um, with a with a born again he was, went through the born again thing before he met me as well mm-hmm. and um, he said it felt the same and he just you know he's like I don't he goes if I start if, he said to me one day. If I'm fearful about not going, um, then that's a problem for me, and I know that that's not right. And um, he's like, "Well, you have to do what you got to do." Right. Um, and you know, and I I stuck around a, a long time after that, um, where he was just, you know, he was just there for me when I came home. And you know, every time, of course, we'd get in an argument. Around, I mean, we're newly married, newly married people. Every time we get in an argument, I'd say, "Oh, you got to go back to the meetings," you know. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's just craziness. Oh my. He's like, no, nope, I think you gotta leave them. <laughs> oh, for how long was that like that? Was years? It was a few years. Oh, a yeah, few years. it was a few years. He he only went. I, I mean, he stopped going even I think before we got married. I think it was right around the time we got married. Um, we were together two or three years before we got married, and 
I mean, it stopped. Um, a lot of our friends were there, and that's why I said to him, like, all our friends are there. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, well, I don't care. <laughs> well, so what happened with that? Yeah, that, I think that's interesting. You live in the same town, right? You're in the same town. Yeah. Well, I met him. I met him through, through. Oh, I say through AA. He was he was part of the original research project that mm-hmm. that uh, for the St. Jude program that mm-hmm. started it. Um, he was one of the subjects, and uh, and one of the founders of the program, Mark Sheeran. He was his best friend from childhood. Oh wow! And that's how we met. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. I mean, I I'm glad I, I didn't go through that. I think when uh, my husband first met me, I was like such a true believing Kool Aid drinking uh, stepper. Although there were many parts of the book that I knew from good therapy that I had done over 20 years ago were just hogwash. You know, I mean, I had I could yeah. really see there were a lot of stuff, the anger stuff and the childhood stuff. I just was like. No, you know, and really in the last few years when I was, maybe the last six, seven years I attended a women's group, whenever anybody would go on and on, how I'm here because of AA and I'm only here today, and I'd be like, I'd raise my hand and go, I am, I am only here on the planet because of everything else I did, not here. And I would say if all I did was this like 12 steps and this stuff, I said I would have killed myself by now. Not even realizing how, like, there was a deprogramming thread that was on Recovering from Recovery, that blog that was up for, like, two or three months. It was so great. It was really good. But I realized if I ever write a book that there will be a chapter. And I realized that I did begin to deprogram many, many years ago about different things. But I still said stupid Stupid stuff to my children, to my ex-husband, to some sponsees. You know, it's uh, wow. It's very, very interesting. I mean, I what I was, I guess, off, off on a tangent. I went there, but that my husband saw me go from somebody that was someone who loved AA to someone who absolutely, uh, I can't stand it. I mean, I, I just right. think it's yeah. I think it's a dangerous cult. Like Gunther said when I first met him. It's a dangerous cult, and it's killing people. And I think it harms more people than it helps today. It does. It absolutely does. Waking up every day to say that you're powerless. Right. Who does that, who does that help? It ne- I never did that. Even when I was going there, I would tell people, don't do that. Mm. You know, don't, don't tell yourself you're powerless, because you're not powerless over a single thing in your life, unless you want to be. Unless right. Decide, but that's wow. what you want to be. Well, you really got a, a lot of work on your hand then with these kids coming in who have been on these ADD meds and they're 19. And I mean, that's why we see the stuff with the shootings uh, going on. But yeah. um, you know what? It has been, we have a minute left. I want to thank everybody who tuned in Gunther and Kenneth Anderson and Amy Lee Coy out there in chat world. And there were a few people who came in and left. But we are here with Michelle. Dunbar from St. Jude's Retreats. Michelle, it's been so awesome. Thank you for uh, <laughs> for being on, and uh, we'll have you on again and, and do some more promoting of your uh, retreats up there. And uh, thank you so much, and I want to thank everybody for joining me tonight, and we'll see you next week. We're going to have Stephen Slate on from the Clean Slate and uh, continue on our path here to freeing the world from a powerless to empowered uh, empowered help.
So thank you so much. Thank you, Monica. All right, we'll talk soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Okay, everybody. Let's see. I don't know what I'm trying to do is to say we'll see you again and good night. <laughs>